Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and welcome to The Daily Beast, The New Abnormal. I'm a left-wing pundit and an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. We're here to have fun, sharp conversations with some of the smartest people in media, politics, and science that help make what's happening in the country and the world clearer. Our world has been turned upside down. On The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and figure out how we get ourselves out of it. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure everything doesn't go too far off the rails. While we have fun discussions about our world gone mad, and why I take that duty seriously, ourselves, not so much. On today's episode, we have the legendary James Carville, as well as a blockbuster interview with Andy Slavitt, who's currently the White House Senior Advisor for COVID Response. Can we talk about last week and the impeachment? Okay. How do you think it went? Extremely well. Okay, explain. Okay, well, first of all, the entire Democratic Party was united. Right. It's 100%. They were split and continue to be split. I mean, there's nobody, not from Joe Manchin to whatever extreme you want to take the Democratic Party to, were all very enthusiastic about this. I thought the presenters, the, the house managers, I mean, look at how much young talent that we uncovered that we didn't even know we had. Right. And they're just on the defensive. And, you know, now you got, you know, Nikki Haley saying this and you got McConnell saying that. that that's just, if that was happening to, on the Democratic side, people would be freaking out. And I would, too. Yeah. I think I think the thing was a, a massive success. And it's not hurt Biden at all. It certainly has not helped Trump. So I, I would call it a massive success. It's almost like Trump has declared war on Mitch McConnell. Well, yeah. I mean, he's declared war kind of on everything and everybody down there. It's not, you know, part of his cult. And they are a significant part of McConnell, the gang of seven, I guess it is, the 11 House members. I mean, that that's the most bipartisan impeachment vote in history. And he's lashing out a lot of different people. And I think what you do is you just, you know, there's a, no saying in politics is not very creative if, if it's your you know, your side's in trouble, throw water. Their side's in trouble, throw kerosene. Just, just spray, mm-hmm. throw kerosene over there. <laughs> and they're burning right now. So what do you think Biden's best tactic is now? Ignore it. Do exactly what he's doing. Leave it to the Congress and leave it to the Justice Department. I would tell the new attorney general when he's confirmed is I want the law followed and administered without favor or, or any other way. And if you conclude that any person... It broken the laws of the United States. So for God's sakes, you know, do what you can about it. And I found then I, at that point, I go about my business. Do you think that what is happening with this sort of internal war with Mitch and Trump is going to keep going? And where do you see? I mean, we have 2022. It's a bad map for Republicans. Could you see this playing out there? I, I guess to an extent I could. You know, it, I, they just, you know, McConnell was saying, I'll never speak to him again. And I guess that there's some hope, I know, realistic, maybe it'll just go away. I doubt that it will. And what they got to worry about is real Trumpy people running in the primaries in 2022. I mean, that's the great fear that they have. I mean, they, they could gloss over this, and you're right, the map for them is, you know, they got to compete, you know, in Florida, in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, you know, Wisconsin, Iowa. A lot of places, and they can't take a divisive primary that some Trumpy person gets nominated. It costs them any number of Senate seats, and that's what they're mortified of right now. And who knows what he's going to do going forward. But he doesn't have the same forum. He doesn't have the same platform. He doesn't have the same influence. But he does have influence over a good 75% of the Republicans, which causes them a huge heartburn. Yeah. Can we talk about Bill Cassidy? Sure. What do you think was going on there? Because I'm just curious. It's so unexpected. I have the theory. I'm pretty sure it's right. I think his wife had a lot to do with this. I have no idea, but I know that Ms. Cassidy is like a, uh, I think she teaches special needs kids. 
you know, she's very popular in, in like South Baton Rouge, which is the kind of, a, you know, more fluent part of, of, of Baton Rouge. And I know a lot of people, I know I'm not great, but she just strikes me as the kind of person who would not be impressed with. <laughs> by an armed insurrection <laughs> yeah i don't i don't think mrs Cassidy would be very impressed by i don't again i have no i hadn't talked to a friend of theirs who told me that yeah a human nature magnometer or whatever you want to call it is pretty good and i think it's all pointing that she might have been the tipping point here in that vote how do you survive politically after something like this? Like these Republicans did the right thing and they were very brave and they but wait, how do they survive this? Look, look, right now, Biden is making the most massive bet in modern American politics. And that is that this one point nine or whatever, two point one trillion dollar relief package he has, that that will work and that will and it won't result in any inflation and if they're, if they're right, if, and if the economy comes back like a lot of people think it will, because there's pent-up savings demand and, and they're pouring all this new money into the economy, and they're right, the Democrats are going to have a very good run here, a very good run. However, if they're wrong and it produces inflation or something else happens and there's mismanagement and there's a new variant that starts going wild in the country, then there's going to be real trouble in River City. So just understand, this is this is a this is a huge bet, and they're going to pass this. And if it works, the Republicans are in deep trouble. I mean, there's a reason, Molly, that when people say when the Republicans only care about deficits when Democrats in office, and the reason that they care about deficits or spending when Democrats and they do it themselves, but don't want to let Democrats do it, is because they know that this shit works. Right. Okay. <laughs> it works every time if you like. <laughs> If you spend more, the government spends more and maybe gives a few people a tax cut, you, it's going to boost the economy. Now, some people will tell you that I'm not a good enough economist to say, well, is it a sugar high? And you come back and pay for it later. I have no idea. But Reagan was the great Keynesian president there ever was. But he cut taxes and boosted his defense spending. He didn't want to spend it on people eating, but it's still a dollar that goes there. And that, that's what's behind us. And if this thing, if, if it pays off, it Democrats have a good a good couple of cycles ahead of. If it doesn't, it'll be it'll be not good. <laughs> but that's where we are. <laughs> that's so interesting. I mean, I hadn't even thought of like quite the gamble that was going on. There is a theory that if you lose three different elections, you start to sort of rethink your position. So if we looked at Trumpism, like they lost They've lost. They lost the midterms. They lost this last election. So, if they do get a shellacking in twenty twenty two, do you think that that could finally be the end of Trump? Well, yeah, because what would happen if they get a shellacking in twenty twenty two? The same thing would probably happen to them in twenty twenty four. That happened to Democrats in, in twenty twenty. The reason that that Joe Biden, you know, walked to waltz to the nomination is Democrats just wanted to win. If somebody said they were for Medicare for all, and it didn't matter what they thought that was a losing the general election, ask Elizabeth Warren, just fell off a cliff it, because they were just looking, hey, how can, how can we win? And when you got win-itis, who cares if he's, how old he is, or who cares if I don't agree with his position on, you know, student loan debt forgiveness, Senator. we got to win this goddamn election. Are you kidding me? We don't have time for this. Well, if they get beat in 2022, that's going to be an appealing message for somebody to say, do you, do you want to go down this road again? Do you want 2018? Do you want 2020? Do you want 2022? Maybe we want to try something different, you know, uh, and come up with whatever slogan, that, you know, principal conservatism or I guess Bush made compassionate, but whatever. But that that will whet their appetite for victory where they do well in 2022, the presidential candidates will say, you see, once people got to look at the alternative, they like what Trump did, they like what we did, period 2016, 18, you know, more pollution and more inequality, the country's craving for that. Right, and a half a million dead Americans. The country loves it. Yeah, but, but I mean, that, that's going to be, that's going to shape the direction they go in. I would hesitate to say, I think Senator Cruz is uh, Cancun. Yeah, let's, can we, I was just about to ask you about that. Texas, do you see a world in which this helps Democrats in Texas? You know, it's hard to see how it hurts. It, it, it's so like, you know, and this has got some ways to go because there's a new front coming through and they're trying these kind of rolling outages and, 
you know, it depends, but it's impossible to see how this hurts. Right. That is, I don't see that as a possibility. So I can't, an event like this, yeah, it'll have, it'll have some effect. Ted must be really happy he's not up for re-election in 2022. He's very happy. Because he's exceedingly happy. He's got he's got to twenty four. He's got to get to twenty four, but he can deal with that. But this was a true fiasco. Going to Cancun and then turning around and coming back. Oof. How do you think he came up with that idea? I, I think just mentally, they don't think about it. I mean, I don't know how you spin this. It can't. You know, as Lyndon Johnson, somebody here, Vietnam War, it was a disaster, and a guy said, you know, well, if we say this, he said, son, you can't shine shit. <laughs> there's some times you just can't there's nothing there's no spin on this and i mean he, he got down there and weightlisted himself and turned around and came back to houston you know i just wonder if he even thought about it that would be the question did you ever think about this might not be the best kind of optical that you can come up with or this is probably not a great idea i don't, I, I would that's the question that i'd love to know I don't know. I mean, but it is kind of it's kind of amazing. I I watched that Biden town hall and he I thought he was really he's so compassionate and you really see that and it feels very stark compared to Trump. Do you think I don't think he's a gifted orator like I'm not sure him unscripted is so great, but I do think his interaction with constituents is amazing. He's always been that way. The brilliant thing about Joe Biden and his advisors is they're not brilliant. And ergo, they are brilliant. And they don't try to be brilliant, which would be a colossal mistake. So if they put him in that, they, they know he's going to score high on empathy. He's going to connect with people. And look, is he going to ramble some? Yeah. But, you know, I, he's, he's been that way. And yeah. this, the thing about him... He's never succumbed to, well, if we do these three things, if we, you know, if we pivot to this and we do that. No, I'm not pivoting to shit. I'm staying who I am. <laughs> All right? I'm not pivoting around here. And that's, I think that's what, because he can't, he can't play but one role. And that's Joe Biden. And that's okay because it's kind of a role people like now. And the one thing is, he was in a, what's his name, Warren Melba, I guess, yesterday. And I said, look, Trump's at 41, Biden's at 61. And I said, look, Trump is a jerk and Biden is not. That's worth 20 points in American politics. All right. People are going to like a non-jerk significantly better than they're going to like a jerk. Right. And that's one thing that Biden comes across is he's not he's not a jerk. Like these things that people some people don't like or wish something was different, but not that. And I, I think that he will do more days because I think he will conclude as well to people around him that, hey, this worked out pretty good. A lot of people say that Obama was sort of too smart and that he didn't, he sort of overthunk himself, if that makes any sense. Do you think that the Biden administration is countering that in a way? Well, I mean, you could say the paralysis of analysis. I think that Biden has figured out, look, we, we can't look back. We got to, you know, in, there's a lot of bad history about the Obama package was too insufficiently big and they should have gone bigger. They didn't have any bigger. One vote, they passed it by one vote. How could they gone any bigger? But I think that, yeah, yes, Biden, you know, and it took Obama a little while. He had to get his sea legs or more in the middle of a horrific financial crisis then. So I, I, I think Biden out of the chute is, you can say, is more definitive than President Obama was. And, and you know, Obama had a more of a, a lust for debate and, you know, but on the other hand, and I think Biden is like, hey, this is the plan. Let's throw the switch and go. But, you know, I hope and look again, as I pointed out, we got he's got an awfully big bet out there. Whew. He's inherited like the worst. I mean, have you ever heard of a president inheriting a pandemic, a financial crisis and a and, a, you know, enormous reckoning with policing and race? In where on top of that, you know, bitter political divisions within the country. So, you know, he's, and, and, you know, if you go on and on and you think of all the other the climate crisis, the, the rise of China, the fall of American influence over four years, he don't have a, a lot of time to, to second guess himself. I mean, he's, he, he's got to go. And to his credit, from what we can see so far, he's going. I mean, they, 
that made some pretty good decisions so far. I'll give them a lot of credit for that. The climate stuff is seems really scary. It's so scary. And me living in Louisiana, I mean, it's just it literally ground zero. You, you know, we had five hurricanes last year. I mean, just can't imagine what, what, what all of this is like and, you know, all of this again in the middle of a pandemic. And it, it's not going to get any better. I, I promise you. Everybody knows that. So I, I you know, think they got some good people they have appointed in some of these positions. I think the vaccines are starting to go a little better. They got to crank that crap out as fast as they can. See, I keep thinking that even though things are boring, in a way, you know, it's the the conversation has shifted from like the president is about to do something insane. I don't mean boring. I mean boring with quotes. But, you know, it shifted from is he going to blow us all up to what's he going to do about COVID relief? I don't think American democracy is safer, though. Like, it still feels like there's really scary elements at play. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, what we've learned is we just kind of grew up a bit. I'm much older than you, but just everything would kind of, as I told my students, it's, oh, we were in Vietnam, we had problems, we had the, you know, oil crisis, and we had 9-11, and we had Katrina, and we had, you know, I never, like, crossed my mind that the United States as I knew it would not be there in the future. Well, boy, that crossed a lot of minds here in the last four years. And you know, there's this kind of sense, well, shoot, you know, some people say close call. We, we're, we're not over this. It's not, you know, this call has not been made that our survival of, of the kind of within the framework that we're accustomed to is going to continue. I, I could see Biden's economic plan, but, you know, sometimes things don't go well and a new variant comes in and there's an economic collapse and that's game, set, match for the United States we knew. I mean, we came very close to throwing the whole goddamn thing over the fence. Yeah. And we just kind of had a last minute diving catch and we caught it, but we're not out there any. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we dodged a big bullet, but that democracy as we know it, the, the, the Supreme Court is sitting on Trump's tax returns. There's no earthly reason in the world that they don't issue that order that the New York authorities entitled to it. They just keep sitting on the order. I, I, don't, I don't trust the Supreme Court to protect our institutions at all, at all. And we're going to see right now. Oh, that sounds bad. <laughs> hey, folks, if you haven't heard, every single week we do a special bonus episode for Beast Inside, the Daily Beast membership program. Sometimes we interview senators like Cory Booker or the folks who explain what's happening behind the scenes in media, like Jim Acosta or Soledad O'Brien. Sometimes we just have fun and talk to our favorite comedians and actors like Busy Phillips or Billy Eichner. And sometimes we just have friends around to analyze what's happening in the news. You can get all of our episodes in your favorite podcast app of choice by becoming a Beast Inside member, where you'll support the Beast's fearless journalism, as well as getting full access to podcasts and articles. To become a member, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, there's something I've really been needing to get off of my chest lately, which is that everyone and their mother should listen to the Andre 3000 album because it lifts my spirits on a regular basis, 1000%. We all carry around different problems, big and small. And let's be honest, when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. That's where therapy comes in. It's like this safe space where you can unload all those burdens and start figuring out 
about how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy can make a difference. I know this from firsthand experience, and it's not just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for anyone who wants to improve their mental well-being. Therapy can help you learn coping skills. It can teach you how to set better boundaries, and it can make you be a better version of yourself. If you're considering therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, which means it's convenient, flexible, and fits into your schedule seamlessly. Plus, getting started is as easy as filling out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part? You can switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. So why wait? Take that first step towards a happier, healthier you with Better help. Get it off your chest with better help. Visit betterhelp.com slash the new abnormal today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P dot com slash the new abnormal. Now we're going to speak to White House Senior Advisor for COVID Response, Andy Slavitt. Andy's story is so interesting in that he went from being the head of Medicare Medicaid for the Obama administration to podcasting his way through the best ideas of how to solve this pandemic during the Trump administration. And the Biden White House was then smart enough to take him on and bring him back in to be this lead on COVID response. And so today we're going to get some answers on what's going on with the vaccination process. Hi, Andy. Welcome back. Good to be back. We're excited to have you. I've been watching your briefings. You have? Yes. So what is it like to inherit the COVID response after having seen it from the outside to go right in and baptism by fire, get going with it? The first two days were a little bit scary because we didn't really realize how much had been done and what we thought had been done, hadn't been done, and we didn't really have a plan. I don't say that to belittle the people that were working on it. There were really good people working on it, but there wasn't support from the top. Really? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Wait, so Jared... I thought Jared had it handled. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, let me, I'll put it to you this way without taking your bait. (laughs) (laughs) If they had a plan, it was a plan to create vaccines. It was not to vaccinate people. Right. So it was like, like other things that they had done where it was like, we do our part at the federal level, but it's all on the States. And if it doesn't go well, um, we're not going to take accountability. And that's an uncharitable description. And I'm not really saying this to be, political per se or point fingers, because the truth is, I don't want people as they're thinking about whether to take a vaccine or not to say, huh, I'm a Democrat, I should, I'm a Republican, I shouldn't. Truth is, that doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. But, you know, I think personally, like coming from the off to the sidelines where I was, you know, a, a critic to actually doing it was good. I mean, it was, it's, you feel like, can we all feel much better when we can actually affect the outcome instead of sit on the sidelines? And so, it was nice to join a, a team of people that had been comparably chopping at the bit to try to solve these problems. Yeah. It feels like Fauci has been given permission to do his job. I think we hear that across the government from scientists and career social servants, people in FEMA who just say, I feel unleashed. Yeah. What you do well is logistics management. Go do it. What you do well is scientific discovery. Go do it. And as you said, you watch these briefings we do. You know, we set them up so that people could hear straight talk, scientists and public health people consistently, repetitively, like it, by the way, Germany did from the beginning. And then, you know, then they get to hear our strategy on top of it and we enter questions. So there's plenty enough smart people to solve this problem. We just need to let them do their jobs, organize them and create a sense of urgency around this. And that's what we're, we're that's what we're trying to do. It seems like you guys got a lot more vaccines. Can we talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, when we got here, there were three things that hadn't been put to bed. Not enough vaccines, not enough vaccinators, and not enough places for people to get vaccines. So the the president directed us to purchase enough vaccines sufficient to vaccinate all Americans. We purchased 600 million vaccines, and they will be produced and ready to be out the door by the end of July. And those are from Pfizer and Moderna. That's from Pfizer, exactly, from Pfizer and Moderna only. So if other vaccines are improved, approved as we hope, that'll be on top of that. So um, we should hear in the next you know, week or so from Johnson & Johnson on, on that vaccine. That would, that would obviously be great news, but. That's been a bit disappointing. I feel like they have tempering expectations on the timetable. Oh, on production, you mean? Yeah. 
So let's start with this. The important thing is the efficacy and safety of the vaccine. And right. FDA is going to pine on that. And I think that's going to be knock on wood. Every other day that we've seen, um, so it sounds like this is going to be very positive. But, you know, they'll, they'll come out with their recommendations. Yes, I think like with all the vaccine manufacturers, I was under the impression coming in, as I think many Americans were, that there were big stockpiles of vaccines waiting to go out the door that were produced over the course of the last year. And that has been much, much less the case than I think we've been led to believe what it is. But I would love to tell you we were going to be starting with a huge stockpile of Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The truth is we're starting with a small number, and we've got to build it as quickly as possible and put in plans to build it as quickly as possible. But the J&J is exciting because it's a a one-shot, right? It's one shot. They're actually testing it now to see how it works with two shots as well. But the numbers from one shot are pretty good. And also, it doesn't have the same super cold requirement. It's not as fragile. Right, right, exactly. It doesn't need this, what they call this cold chain set of freezers and so forth. So that's a, that's a positive, and it also means it's a good vaccine for the world. Right. Because you got to get it to remote places. Can you explain to me what's happening with AstraZeneca? Because that seems like very much a clusterfuck. <laughs> Sorry. Is that a scientific term? I don't know if you've heard it. Well, so AstraZeneca is um, approved um, by the WHO and in the, in the EU, and it's a, it's a very low-cost, simple vaccine. Not to say simple. It's a very low-cost vaccine. You know, I think the challenge, the challenging news you point to is that in South Africa, um, it didn't appear to do very well against the South African variant. Now, the CEO of AstraZeneca tells me they will be able to adjust the vaccine to make it work for South Africa. So we'll see. Hopefully that's the case. That would be very good news because we got to vaccinate. Remember, we got to vaccinate billions and billions of people so things to stop swinging around. So we're very hopeful. In terms of the U.S., they don't have complete U.S. data yet. They haven't submitted, right? They haven't submitted yet. So we're not taking, you know, into any of our plans into account for other vaccine candidates right. that haven't been approved by the FDA. So the FDA will, if they do make a submission, the FDA will do its work. The data will be publicly visible and we'll all get a chance to to see and then they'll you know they'll make a decision based upon that but right now that's not you know it's not one we're dealing with can we talk about variants i'm sorry i get so excited about this i i know it's you know as a trial participant you know i just want to talk about covid all the time all day long these variants so the uk variant and the south africa variant are different strains. There's a lot of information out there. It's not clear. Some of it is very scary. What is your take? And it sounds like, from what Fauci was saying yesterday, it sounds like it's definitely coming here. And it's definitely here. What do you think this means for us? Let's talk about short term and let's talk about long term. Short term, the B117 variant, which is the one found in the UK, that's the one that's most in abundance here. It does spread faster. That is the bad news. And it might be more lethal, although um, you know unclear. And, and if it is, it is um, not dramatically more lethal. But it is more contagious, which means that it but just it takes will fewer, be more lethal. fewer particles. If it's more contagious, it'll end up hitting more people, which will make it more lethal. So the good news is that the, all of the vaccines work very well against the English, um, the UK, the B117 variant. So that's that's good. The South African variant, and there's another one that looks like the South African variant called, that's the Brazilian variant. That one, it's interesting. There is a degradation of performance um, of the vaccines against that, against the South African variant. However, that degradation is thankfully still above the scientific threshold for effectiveness. So it's like it was beating it by a lot. Right. It still generates antibodies. It doesn't generate as many, but that's good. So that so then for the near term, that's the picture. I've been, I've talked to all of the vaccine manufacturers since I've been here about what their plans are to keep updating their vaccines because there will be more mutations, and we need to make sure that science wins the race against the variants. And so the FDA is coming out with guidance, not just for the vaccines, but also for the monoclonal antibody therapies and the, and the diagnostic tests to make sure that they can, uh, as rapidly as possible and as safely as possible, continue to keep up with and stay ahead of the variants. So it is both a short-term question as well as the ability for us to have science uh, continue to move fast. I'm 
want to go back to the vaccine effectiveness against the variants for a minute, because this is a question. I think I know the answer to this, but I want to know if I'm right. These vaccines still prevent severe disease from the variants, even if they don't prevent infection. Is that correct? Well, yes. And again, the, uh, the variants are all a little bit different, but they, they prevent both mild and severe against the UK variant. And they do it not as good a job, but still a good job against the South African and more so certainly severe disease. It's a very smart question, Molly, because most of us could live with a, a runny nose and a slightly elevated temperature. What we don't want us to be hospitalized, need to go on oxygen and die. Those are the, right. those. So they call these in clinical trials, they call these the endpoints. You know, we may have done a little bit of a disservice to ourselves when with the, with the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, we talked about the endpoint as including modern and mild. Yeah. Because we really don't care as much about the mild. And so we get very fixated on the fact that they're 95% effective against both. Right. And we probably should have stepped back and said, you know what, let's just measure it against more severe symptoms, in which case the Johnson & Johnson does very close to comparable uh, in the that we've seen. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. I, I should say, Eddie, most of these questions I have, I source from people who can't find answers to these. I figured you're the perfect guy to ask. So my best friend just got the vaccine, and she's concerned, though, that seems to be a lot of information floating around that you know these vaccines only may be effective for three to six to nine months. Is there, as a frontline worker, a way to get tested and find out how effective your vaccine is and if you need a booster after you get your second shot a few months later? So we don't know durability yet. Um, of the vaccines. It's obviously too early to know. I think the scientists are, look, I, I mean, everybody is rightfully conservative about releasing information they don't know the facts of. I think people are, feel pretty good that, that the duration of these vaccines is good. And what that means, how frequently will you need a booster? Will it be like the flu and every year? Will it be two years? Will it be more than that? No one really knows the answer to that just yet. But I'd say, that people should be confident that whatever that answer turns out to be, the scientific agencies and the pharmaceutical companies are very focused on making sure that that's, that's done. By the way, Molly, what was your experience and, and the outcome of, of the vaccines you took uh, when you did the, when you did that, when you participated in the trial? So I was given the placebo oh. and then Pfizer uh, vaccinated me. Okay. And it was great. <laughs> it was like the best thing ever. And I was so thrilled. And um, and I didn't have any, I wasn't particularly sick or anything from the vaccine. Got it. Because I'm such a loudmouth, I became like friends with all my doctors at the study site and all the other, you know, I just had a blast. And now I, you know, I'm friends with the Pfizer people. You know, I just talk to everyone because that's, um, you know, America's grandmother. <laughs> so each state is handling this rollout differently, some to greater success than others. And this could be obviously pretty disheartening if you're one of the people who lives in one of those states. Is the federal government doing anything to like give some of the best practices that are working in these states to the states that are not doing it as well? Jesse, you're sourcing some great questions. <laughs> I appreciate that. So when, when we got here January 20th, one of the things we learned is that only 46% of the vaccines delivered to states had actually made its way into people's arms. Now, you never would expect that to be 100%, but 46% it's pretty low. Was, was low. The good news is states are doing a lot better today. All of them are doing better. And that number is now around 75%. And I can go into the reasons why that is, but a lot of it is, as you say, Jesse, some of the best practices, giving just clear visibility into how many vaccines they are, how many, how many people are going to get, because in, in when there's shortages, people hoard. So right. people are just storing them away. Yeah, for the second shot, too. Second shot, in case they didn't get more. And we basically said, we are going to give everybody three weeks of visibility and how many vaccines are coming. That's great. Um, and that really helped. And then we kept increasing the amount of doses, and so people started to feel more reliable. The second thing is we started standing up around states, um, with their knowledge, of course, other programs. So we've, we've, we've been standing up these things we call community vaccination centers with FEMA. We've been standing up um, a program to deliver directly to retail pharmacies. We have delivered now directly into um, mobile clinics and community health centers. So we're, we're supplementing the, the vaccines we send to states and that extent that does even out some of the variability that you see in states because we're just putting more in directly with a little bit more 
control, and that, I think, helps the cause. The other thing I'd say, Jesse, is important to understand here is it's question is not just how many vaccines are being administered, but also how equitably, equitably they're right. being distributed. Because, look, we all know there are half the population or more would crawl over broken glass to get the vaccine. Right. But the problem is they're crawling over other people. They're, you know, they're getting online and going into communities, maybe neighborhoods they've never visited or visited in a long time. But we put, you know, vaccines into communities that are really hard hit by the virus. Right. And people are, you know, coming in, refreshing their browser, going in and getting these appointments. Jesus. It's really important that we not just focus on how many people we vaccinate, but that we do it as equitably as possible. And that's a big, big push for us. Is there a way to prevent that, to make sure that the vaccine goes to the people who are who live in the area? Or is it just too complicated? Oh, no, it's really important. We're trying to measure it. But unfortunately, most people don't enter race and ethnicity. Even that we know that it's disproportionately going to white people and to privileged people. Yeah. Um, and, it, and unless you do, I mean, the way structural racism works, I don't mean to get on a soapbox, but healthcare at least is, unless you actively do something, then that's what you expect to happen. So we, we ask people to reserve appointments for people from the community. We're asking people to do outbound calling, arranging rides. A lot of it is access. Some of it is some hes- vaccine hesitancy as well. And we've addressed those issues too, but a lot of it is just pure access points. Can we talk for a minute about West Virginia? We can talk about any state you want. <laughs> West Virginia was held up as kind of a model in a strange way. Is that still true? And have you been able to take lessons from it? They are one of the states that's in the sort of the top five in terms of vaccine efficiency. I I have talked personally to the person who runs the program in West Virginia. I like what they're doing. There are lessons. We do calls every week with governors and on a pretty regular basis with um, all of the health directors and vaccine coordinators. And, you know, there are there are lessons. Not every lesson applies to every place. Some are local. But look, there's 58 states and territories. There ain't 58 best ways of doing this. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Are you able to get into the indigenous people and vaccinate? Yeah, I'm not too early to call it a success, but there's a special allocation for um, indigenous people. I read a story this morning, probably in the popular press, saying that, that the native communities are embracing vaccines, which is great. Fantastic. So, like, if you look at where some of the top performing states are, one, one of them is Alaska, largely because of the direct allocation into the native communities is a really good question. It's the first time I've been asked that question. I'm so glad you asked it. And I know this isn't going to be a big issue because it's not necessarily contagious enough to become another COVID, but Ebola is, there's now an Ebola outbreak, right? Or it's cooking. Yeah. So look, the good news now is that hopefully the people realize that if something happens anywhere in the world, it affects us and we're connected. And I think the last time there was an Ebola outbreak, um, you know, I think uh, it, there, there, there's a certain amount of that creeps in where people, well, as far away as over there. I, you know, I remember when, when COVID was in China and it was yeah. like, oh, wow, this thing is so far away and won't be going to China for a while, right? That was sort of the kind of reflexive mindset. Today, I think um, understanding why having the best global resources out of the CDC and the WHO to identify these things as quickly as possible and hopefully the world will be smarter, not just the world organizations, but all of us as individuals will understand that, you know, infectious diseases are a fact of life. They're one we haven't thought about very much in a long time, unless you were someone who was very affected by the AIDS and HIV epidemic here. Um, Those people who have been affected and people who live in San Francisco and New York, um, uh, and women have been here for a long time, will tell you um, they will never forget what that was like. Right. And Fauci worked on that. Fauci worked on that. But, you know, so many Americans, and I, I, was, a, I was not that old, but I was a teenager in 1980, but I think for a lot of us, like, it, it because if you, you know, a lot of times if it's not happening to you, you feel safe, you ignore it. And I look back on, on this period now with some amount of horror and shame that as a country, we and all of these people were dying under our eyes and we didn't do better. And it didn't really enter everyone's consciousness uh, because p- many people were able to run away from it. And I hope that never happens again. So Andy, I have two different friends who are long haulers. And you know, I'm getting really scared because 
One, every doctor they go to kind of just throws their hands in the air and says, no one knows. They can't find resources. One's abusing painkillers now, which leads to another crisis. Is there anything being done to create a resource about what treatments are working for long haulers and anything for support for them? First of all, Jesse, congratulations on having all these friends. (laughs) (laughs) Well, someone has to. Yeah. Uh, that's right. I, I know you're special. You know. <laughs> and look, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about those situations. Those are so challenging for people. And, and um, I have been numerous times on the Facebook support groups for, for of the long haulers. And it's quite a community that I do think there are, and hope there are answers around the corner, but what needs to happen is exactly as you described, and it is it is happening, in, as, as you know, and, and at least in some cities now, there are COVID uh, centers for people with chronic illness from COVID so that people can be treated, people can develop a body of expertise that can be studied. You know, the, the NIH is focused on that. Um, it doesn't get enough attention, but it is critical. You know, I have heard something, well, I don't want to deal in rumor, but I have heard, I read somewhere on one of the chat boards that the that people who are long haulers that have gotten vaccinated, that that's been helpful to them. And so I'm telling you this in a completely non-scientific, non-government official way. Uh, and I'm sure that the people on the on the websites will will know more and give more, more depth and balance to that. But I've seen some discussion around that. And, you know, I, I have... Um, family member who has had lingering symptoms, unfortunately, um, with, with COVID. And I think they're improving and they're not debilitating. But the mystery is is almost as much of a problem as the fact itself, right? Because it creates a lot of concern among all of us and some anxiety. And that's very real because, you know, if you were, I think if you were just feeling these symptoms and there wasn't the mystery surrounding them, we would all breathe a little bit easier. But the unknown is scary. Appreciate that. I heard Fauci talk about viral loads and, you know, he did work on HIV. I'm curious to know what the thinking is there with that, because he was saying that there that it may be that these variants have an increased viral load and that the viral load may be may have some, you know, can, can you talk about what the science is saying right now on that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I will do my poor version of Anthony Fauci without the Brooklyn accent. Um, And, you know, if you haven't met him, um, he's like 10 times as delightful as he seems. No, I, so what, what he said is, you know, we, we are now, we now, first of all, the first fact establishes, we believe there's a correlation between viral load and infectiousness. So makes sense. Um, and we are now have some empirical studies, although they're not, you know, the huge, huge body of data, which says that the viral load is decreased for people who are vaccinated. So that would tell you that the question that I think all of us have been waiting for an answer for, but I've been hopeful on is that it appears to be pointing in, the, in a positive direction that these vaccines not only um, reduce disease and save lives, but these vaccines also will reduce the ability of people to infect one another, which if it holds up will be terrific news. So, you know, I think that's what he's sharing with folks. I, you know, you mentioned the the, the, the briefings that, that we do, he and I and Kel Walensky and others from the administration, you know, sharing honest answers when we don't know everything is part of science. And it does sometimes make people uncomfortable, uh, but it is our commitment. And he does, I think he does such a great job at doing that and explaining things. But I think that's what he was saying. It's so interesting. I mean, it just feels like the science is evolving so quickly. Yes, it is encouraging. I mean, it is, I will tell you just from the inside look, talking to our scientists, the government, talking to the researchers that are doing this work within pharmaceutical and biotech companies, it, it is encouraging. Um, and you do get a sense that there's very smart people getting their hands around things. I say this without you know, giving a false sense of that everything is solved. And it's also true in almost all walks of this. I feel like we skipped a year on, uh, that we could have spent energizing the country and asking people to contribute. And like, you know, I mean, we have companies and private sector, public sector that are just coming up making commitments that are and, and doing really forward looking things to help end this crisis that I feel like they've been very eager to do. And it's 
very encouraging because this, this will not get solved by one administration or the government as a whole. It'll get solved by everybody working together. And I think we just missed an opportunity over the last year to call people out and say, hey, can you help? It's a lot harder to do nothing than to do something. You know, to sit around and feel victimized is, is the worst feeling. But this country, I think, is starting to get mobilized. Or at least that's my perception. I know people are exhausted, but they're going to be exhausted in, from dealing. They're not going to be dealing with misinformation. They're going to be dealing with facts, and I think that will help sustain people till we get through this. So interesting. I so appreciate you coming on. I just, um, it was really great and so helpful for us. Thank you. Yeah, it was great to talk to you both again. And Jesse, congratulations on all your friendships. <laughs> I appreciate it. He's <laughs> very popular. It's quite annoying. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Molly. So excited to be here for the segment. <laughs> you get to participate in our segment. <laughs> Love to be here for the discourse. <laughs> That's right. We're all about the discourse Especially because we're going to discuss such great people, so, some of my least favorite people in the entire world. You know what's interesting? It's sometimes when we record this, there's not an obvious fuck that guy. There's just a whole mess today. It, it's yeah. like the, the mess outside our homes in Brooklyn today of shitty snow. I like my dirty snow because mm. it's being covered by fresh, clean snow, and it's also covering all the garbage. But I want to talk to you about the great state of Texas. I, I don't mess with Texas, but not in the way they say it. Like, I don't mess with it. Texas is having one of the great humanitarian disasters of the year and maybe the decade. People are literally freezing to death. There is not power. There is not heat. They're boiling water. I mean, it's just like... It's really sad. I, I got very upset watching some TikToks of it last night. Yeah, I mean, people are really, really suffering. And you know what people want their elected officials to do when they're really suffering? <laughs> what, what's that? When you're suffering without power or heat, you want your elected to go on television, hopefully on a uh, far-right cable news network like Fox News, and talk about how this is all the fault of AOC's Green New Deal. Yes, which doesn't exist, and they tried to manipulate tons of statistics to say that it was all this clean energy that is actually the problem when that's the exact opposite. There is about, <laughs> clean energy makes up about 12% of Texas's energy, and 88% is oil and gas. And this oil and gas was not winterized, but instead of going on television and saying stuff that was actually true, a lot of these people, including the Texas Governor Abbott, went on television and said that, in fact, this was the fault of wind power and not the fact that they never winterized the grid. And so it failed because it froze. And they have no regulations. And as we learn, like, you know, when China has these low-grade earthquakes and it destroys whole villages, and yet when we have them, people don't even notice, regulations get a lot of bad, bad raps, but they do really good things for making sure your infrastructure doesn't fail. Yeah. I, I mean, I am actually, you know, pro-regulation. But anyway, so when people are freezing to death and boiling their water and have no power or heat for days and days on end, they like elected officials to go to Cancun to have a vacation. <laughs> yes, this, this brings me to my fuck that guy. But you know, I'm not going to take the easy bait and go straight for Raphael Ted Cruz. Lion Ted? Lion Ted, some do call him. And Canada's worst export? <laughs> that is definitely the case. I still think we got to go for one of my least favorite, just vile human beings, Dinesh D'Souza, who made a particularly bad tweet would you like to read it? <laughs> I mean, how can I not read this Dinesh D'Souza tweet? And you know what's so interesting about this tweet, I would like to point out, is that do you think that Ted Cruz would die on a hill of defending Dinesh D'Souza? Because I do not. <laughs> no, right? No. I was reading it and I was thinking, Ted would not do this for you. I, I think, you know, it really speaks a lot to the Trump pardon system of that. He gave Dinesh that one simply because Dinesh was loyal. That really showed the thing because no one likes Dinesh no except one. for Trump who likes everybody who likes him. Uh, well, he has a wife, so I guess his wife likes him. Uh, what could at Ted Cruz do if he were here in Texas? I'm hard-pressed to say. If he's in Cancun, that means I'm doing a dramatic reading in case for those uh, keeping track at home. If he is in Cancun, that means he's not using up valuable resources of energy 
food, and water that can be used by someone else. This is probably the best thing he could do for the state right now. <laughs> you know, the, the worst ones, though, to me were like the Eric Ericsons who like were like, who cares about elected officials? He's not going to do anything. And it's like, you know... These people complain about out-of-touch elites all day. That's their whole thing of dividing culture war. And then when their elites are out of touch, it's time to go to bat defending them. Got to trot out all the best defenses because we can never, ever be owned by the libs. God forbid. You know what's interesting to me? It's like I think about it. We always are given such a difficult time because people say Democrats turn on their own. And that's sort of true. But it's also true Mm -hmm. that like, if an elected Democrat did something like this, We'd be all over them, too. I mean, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just because you're a Democrat doesn't mean you do the right thing all the time. In fa- fact, my, why don't we just give a bonus fuck that guy to the people with that and say fuck you to our UNI's governor, Andrew <laughs> Cuomo, a Democrat. Andrew Cuomo has recently been caught threatening a congressman from Queens. And when asked... Our terrible Democratic mayor, Mayor de Blah Blah. <laughs> I, I prefer Bill de Bugler. That's the one right wing nickname I like to use. He was like, yeah, that's what Cuomo does. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, usually I could never defend de Blasio, but when he. He has definitely been the person most bullied by Cuomo. So yes. calling that witness to the stand, <laughs> I think, is a fair game. But Andrew Cuomo really did disgusting things here with these nursing homes and COVID patients and then covering up things and then selling himself as the savior of COVID when he's been just really, really reprehensible and has behaved like the thugs that Republicans characterize Democrats as. He he is the character of that. And we need to do better when we elect Democrats. And so for that, I think he gets a fuck that guy too. I'm right there with you. I think uh, fuck that guy. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.